You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We begin a new preaching series. You can move your bookmark to the book of Psalms, move your Bible tassel to the book of Psalms. We'll be in here for about three months. It'll take us up to to Easter. And uh, here's where we're going to spend some time in this collection, 150 Hebrew poems, Hebrew praises and psalms and prayers, uh, meant to mirror the experience of God's people from all times and everywhere. Uh, We see in here uh, such a unique resource uh, in the Psalms. They're practical for us, even today, um, that it's so practical that it can be said there's not a single uh, experience or motion that that can be experienced that isn't represented in the Psalms. It's all in there. Anger, despair, depression, joy, celebration, fear, doubt, frustration, regret, crisis, and collapse of faith even. We see it in the book of Psalms. And for us during those times, the question often becomes, how do I talk to God when something like that is going on in my life? How do I talk to God when I'm feeling angry, hurt, when I'm feeling bereaved, when I'm feeling his distance? Can I approach him? And what, even, what words do I say? The Psalms give us a script. The Psalms are like a parent talking to a child when a child is learning how to speak and learning language. The child repeats those words back. God gives us words to speak in in a multitude of, of, of experiences so that we speak those back to him. He teaches us how to talk to him in moments of crisis and despair, even in joy. And so we have an incredible resource in the Psalms. Uh, they're designed to give us language um, for how to speak. And, and I want you to know as we launch into this, if you give yourself to the Psalms, if you actually give your, your time to read the Psalms, you'll find that they are incredibly honest, that they are raw, unsugar-coated experience and emotion. And sometimes that makes people feel uncomfortable. The emotions are all in there. And, and in our culture, there's a couple dominant voices that are speaking into how do we deal with our emotions when we feel them. You know, the first voice, and maybe this is familiar to you, the first voice says, stuff your emotions. It sounds a lot like, suck it up, get over it. Because emotions can get in the way of living out a true and honest life. And so we, emotions are, expressing emotions might be weakness. And so the way we control our emotions is by pretending they're not there at all and just get on with your life. There's another voice, of course. The second voice tells us to give free reign to our emotions and feelings. The slogan of this voice might be, I am what I feel. Express yourself, says Madonna. Uh, For a more uh, contemporary example, uh, Lizzo. You know Lizzo, right? No? No? I I thought you guys were cooler than that. Okay, of course, Lizzo says, don't hide no emotions, wear them on my sleeve, all my feelings Gucci. So translation, to be Gucci is to be like good, supreme, awesome, without critique, things like that. So what she is saying is, if I have an emotion, if I have a feeling, I'm going to show it, and you can't tell me I'm wrong. Because the best way to express myself and emotion is to give free reign to my emotion, to bow to my emotions, and those emotions are without critique. But the Psalms say we don't really have permission to follow either of these two voices. The Psalms don't allow us to ignore our emotions, 
nor do they let us bow to our emotions. We should not be denying them as if they don't exist, nor should we be venting them without critique. The Psalms give us a third voice. They tell us a third story, a third voice for how we are to deal with our emotions. The Psalms invite us to direct our emotions, to direct our feelings. What do I mean by direct? We are meant to aim our emotions to God in prayer. Like a bow and arrow, we are meant to to take our emotions and stretch them towards God and cast them to Him. And And it's in Him we see His care and His righteousness. It's, it's, it's in him we see his faithfulness and goodness as we pour out our cries of our heart to him in prayer. And when we do this, when we see in the Psalms give us an honest approach, we're given permission to be truly emotional, truly emotional people. We are given permission to feel and express ourselves as truly human They're so honest, so honest sometimes they make us feel uncomfortable. Some psalms make us wonder, am I really allowed to talk like that? Am I allowed to feel like that? Can I ask God that question? I feel uncomfortable talking to God so honestly, authentically, so unsugar-coated. For instance, just look at verse 7 in our psalm this morning. David cries out, arise, O Lord, save me, O God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Here's what David is praying to God. He's saying, God, there are some who wish me harm. Some who wish to destroy my reputation, my comfort, my joy. What are you doing? Where are you? When I need you the most, get up, God. Get up and knock the teeth out of those who are my enemies. Knock the teeth out of their mouth. You feel comfortable asking God to do that? Can you say that? Can you, can you plead with God and say, what are you doing when I'm hurting? Get up and do something. You know, what would the world say to a, a comment like that? Well, David, you know, violence really isn't the answer. You know, those feelings of anger and frustration and wanting someone to be hurt is, is really not good in a civilized, civilized uh, culture. It's 2020. We need civility in relationship. If we allow them, the Psalms will teach us a great deal. They'll teach us how to be human. They'll teach us about ourselves. They'll teach us about how to feel honestly. They'll give us a voice to everyday experience. But they'll also teach us about God. They'll teach us about his care for us. They'll teach us about how we are to to take the true feelings that we have and direct them to God in prayer and in praises without stuffing them, without giving full reign to them. So the Psalms are like a mine. They're like a gold mine. And like a gold mine, you might find little pieces and nuggets of value on the surface. But the more you dig, the more good you will find. That's what it's like in the Psalms. And so we want to dig deep. We don't just, there's going to be some things as we read the Psalms over the next few months. where the, the, The benefits will be immediate. You'll see the application and you'll have something to take away with you. But I promise, like all Hebrew poems, the more we dig... The more we meditate, the more we put it in our mouth and and chew it around and really digest what it means, the more good and the more gold we will find. So let's dig in. Let's dig in first to Psalm 3 is where we're going to start our series this morning. Psalm 3. Psalm 3 bears a a title. It bears a title telling us what inspired uh, the real situation in the life of King David and, and what inspired this prayer and this psalm. 
something every parent can relate to. Uh, David's child is trying to kill him. Okay? And so this is true story. David's son, Absalom, he is on the run. His son, Absalom, is trying to kill him. He's hunting David down. The tone is deeply personal. Uh, the, the, the dysfunction in David's family uh, is, is really has run deep. And it's because of David's own failure as a father. David's failed to discipline his son. He's failed to give his son truth and direction. Uh, and his son has grown up desiring to dethrone David from his kingdom and to take the kingdom from him and give it to himself. Now David is on the run for his life. And I want to show you two things practical, uh, very practical for us this morning in Psalm 3 and a very practical outline. We want to see David's crisis, which we'll find out will also be our crisis. And then we want to see David's confidence, which is the confidence given to us as well. Look at, look, let's look first at David's crisis. If I asked you just simply, what's, what's the crisis that David is, is finding here? It should be pretty clear he even says so. David's afraid. He's afraid. He's being hunted, and he is on the run for his life. He is afraid. Right away in verse 1, he's being attacked. Even thousands of people are hunting him down to imprison him and kill him and to take from him everything that he has. Sometimes we exaggerate and say, everyone is out to get me. No one likes me. Everyone hates me. They're all trying to kill me. But this is actually the truth for David. This is how he feels, and it's actually what is happening. He doesn't have a friend in the world. His physical well-being is being attacked. But there's something more than just that surface fear. Verse 2, he laments. He says, many are saying of my own soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So you see, David's body is being attacked, but there is another attack happening. His soul is being attacked. What's happening to David? What is he sharing in this psalm? He's sharing with us that there are two kinds of fears. There is a fear that is healthy. There is a fear that, 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 that we should guard against. There's a healthy fear. And then there's a fear that tortures. There's a fear that goes to a soul level that really causes anxiety and torment. Let me give you an example. Imagine you're driving in your car and you have a dramatic near collision. Likely this has happened to probably most, if not all of us. A near collision. Now, no accident happens, but there's tires screeching. Uh, the... They're, you're rattled. It's very close. Uh, you're, you realize that, for, that the, your life was just spared by a matter of inches. Uh, you felt you were so close to injury, maybe even death, and you are scared. I mean, you start sweating cold sweats. You start uh, shaking. You, uh, your heart is racing really fast. You become disoriented and confused. And as you drive away from this near collision, hands are at 10 and 2, Right? It probably takes you a couple hours to calm down, to get to a, a more of a natural resting heart rate. You're nervous, you're kind of afraid, and you're just, you're, you're shaken up. Uh, you're kind of in shock. Maybe for the rest of the day you feel this way, but it's completely normal and a healthy response to something like that. And even into the night, you, you can't sleep. You're just wired. You, you remind your, your friends, be safe out there. Anything can happen in a split second. You tell anyone who you can, like, oh, I was really close, really afraid, but be safe out there. Don't take your eyes off the road. And this is a healthy fear. Driving in a car can be dangerous. It's a healthy fear to have, and we should be careful and alert. But imagine the next day you wake up and you get breakfast and you grab your car keys and you walk to towards your car. You start, to, you start to shake. Your heart starts to race. You start to sweat. You become, start to become really nervous and you don't really know why. 
You can't bring yourself to get in the car. You begin to feel this way, not just in, in, in going in the car, but, but other times throughout the day. In, in non-car related things, anytime you go outside riding a bike or even riding on an escalator, it causes your heart start to, to race and to speed up. You realize you begin to lose your appetite. You become short-tempered, impatient, even your hygiene is affected. You begin showing late to meetings and important work meetings. You miss appointments, you start overusing or abusing alcohol. You see, there's a point where a healthy fear becomes the lens through which we see all of our life experiences. And when this happens, that fear becomes a tormenting fear. It becomes a soul-level fear that tortures us. What's happening when something like that happens? Even after the crisis has passed, healthy fears have a way of changing into torturous fears that make us feel that we are no longer safe, that we are no longer okay. We become restless, we become unsettled, we become anxious, nervous, agitated, always afraid, always restless, always on edge. You know, this fear becomes our identity. It defines who we are. It defines our experiences. And I want you to see as we dig deep, David is speaking of a fear, not just of a physical threat. David is speaking and sharing of a fear at a soul level threat that has potential to define him who he is, that shakes his confidence to the point where he feels he is no longer okay. He is no longer safe. The fear of physical pain seems to be the lesser of these two fears than the torment of what could happen to him because of his own sins, because of what has happened in his life and the people that are hunting him and the people that are, that are telling of him, not even God is on his side. And there's no doubt that David remembers, as he remembers the life and circumstances of the first king of Israel, Saul. Do you remember what happened with Saul, the first king of Israel? He spiraled into disobedience and God rejected Saul and he ripped the kingdom away from Saul because of his disobedience. God anointed Saul and he made him king and he gave him great victory and prosperity in Israel. And then Saul disobeyed God, and God even went to great lengths to say, I regret making you king. And he ripped his kingdom from him, and not only his kingdom, he ripped his very favor from Saul to where Saul was all alone. And David is feeling, is this what's happening to me? David now finds himself in a familiar situation, a familiar emotional situation that Saul encountered. David's no doubt recounting his sins, adultery, Murder, failure to lead God's kingdom, failure to lead God's people, now failure to even lead his own family to the point where his son wants to kill him. David is feeling soul sick. He's at the risk of not only being physically tormented, but traumatized at a much deeper level where his soul is afraid of losing significance, purpose, and greater yet, the favor of God. It's the fear of all fears. The fear of being totally hopeless and totally out of control. That's how David feels. Now, this is David's specific crisis. Feeling totally hopeless, totally out of control, everyone is against him. But there's many ways to be in crisis. There's many ways to suffer. For the Christian, in some parts of the world, the threat is physical. In other parts of the world, it's the threat of mockery or being betrayed. It's, it's condescension or belittling of our beliefs. It's the threat of harassment for what we believe as Christians. 
Sometimes the suffering and crisis that we experience in the world is in the form of sickness, prejudice, injustice, illness, death, and even self-inflicted consequences because of our own sins. There are many threats and many ways to suffer. I want to ask you, have the consequences in your life ever broken your heart to the point of you feeling out of control? Have the consequences and fears in your life ever increased to the point of a soul torment where you have felt, is there any hope? Is there anyone who can help me? Of course you have. We've all been bereaved. We have all experienced loss. We have all been betrayed. We've all been disappointed. We've all failed, to, failed and, and fallen short of, of goals and aspirations in life. We have all missed the mark. We have all have regret of, of sins in our life, and we're experiencing the pain of that in many ways today. I mean, it's January 5th, and you're already behind on your Bible and your reading plan. You're such a failure. What will God ever do with you? You see, in the Christian experience, underneath all the healthy sadness, and I want to say that it is, it, it, when you fail, it's healthy to feel sad. When you are betrayed, it is healthy to feel sad. When you are hurt and sick, it's healthy to feel sad. But in the Christian experience, underneath all this healthy sadness and fear is the haunting fear that God has forgotten and abandoned you as a result of those things that have happened. If God is good, if God is powerful, why does he not prevent that trouble from happening? And why doesn't he rush quickly to make it better when it does? We listen to people and we listen to our own hearts that say, like they say to David, there is no salvation for you. You know what they're saying? No one cares. You're on your own. You know, the real crisis for us is when our sadness over real things morphs into something else. The real crisis for us is when the sadness over real things morph into something other than itself. No longer are we sad about that specific failure. No longer are we sad about that betrayal. No longer are we sad about the loss. We are now not so sure if we are lovable, adequate, or good enough for God at all. And when that happens, we understand the fear that David is experiencing and communicating in the Psalms. It's not so much a threat of physical death. It is a threat that he is hopeless in this world. We feel hopeless. David's crisis is our crisis. His sadness is our sadness of our soul. It flows from fear. When you're always nervous, always restless, always agitated, always afraid. When your soul is sad, do you know the last thing that you're able to do? You know what you can't do? You can't sleep. Is that true? You can't sleep. These are things commonly that create insomnia in our life. Agitation, always on edge, temperamental, nervous, anxious, worried about the past, worried about the future as we look into the future. You're not sleeping. At the time when insomnia is the most expected and probable thing for David, do you see what he is doing? He's sleeping. Do you see what's going on in this psalm? He is sleeping in verse 5. He says, I lay down and sleep. How does he sleep? Because when we look at his crisis, we see our own crisis. But when we look at his confidence, we see our own confidence. We've seen his crisis, now let's see his confidence. 
In an abrupt change of tone, David shifts his attention from his fears where his confidence lies. And the clue is given in a very simple and important word in verse 3, and it's the word but. David is shifting here. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. How is God a shield? Is he a shield for David? No, he's not a shield for David. Is he a shield with David? No. The scripture says he's a shield about David. What does it mean that he's a shield about David? David isn't describing this battle scene where David has this little shield, right, that you put on. It's not like a Captain America shield, that he's got a little shield in his arm, and then he's got a sword or a weapon of some kind in the other hand, and David's going into battle with God's help. When he says, you're a shield about me, he's describing like the SWAT team shield that rushes into danger and pushes back a riot or goes into a building where wickedness lurks. It is the kind of shield that curves around you, that goes above your head and down all the way down to your feet. Here's why that's important to understand what kind of shield this is. He's not saying, God, I know that you won't let anything bad happen to me. I know you'll protect me from outside arrows and threats. That's what a lot of Christians think, that if I follow Jesus, that nothing bad will happen to me. But here's what he's saying instead. He says, even though, see, what is a SWAT team shield used for? It's, for, it's used for going into danger. David is saying, God, I know that even as you lead me into crisis, you will fight my battles and you will sustain me in the midst of them and you will ultimately grant me victory. Here's the principle for our faith. If one gazes too long upon our crisis, if we gaze in our heart, in our mind's eye, too long at our struggle or our enemy or our fears or even the sadness of our own lives, then the enemy grows in our heart to gigantic proportions. But the soul-crushing fear of the enemy is broken when we turn our gaze towards God who holds us in his care. This kind of shield that David is describing, that God is about him, the shield that is about him, is no benefit to the one who's running away from the danger. The shield is no benefit to him. It's the kind of shield that is only beneficial to the person who is following God no matter where God is leading them. It is impossible to have confidence in the care of God and yet running from the life that he is leading us into. We can run from God or we can run forward with God wherever he leads us. There is no other direction open to us. There is no third direction. It is impossible to feel peace in the comfort of God's care for us and yet running away from him. You see, if God is leading us into danger, it means that there, is, that there is something beyond that danger or in the midst of that danger that he wants us to know and to see that is good for us. And David is saying, you're the shield about me. I hide myself as you are going into this crisis. I'm hiding myself in you. 
I want to give you an example of what this looks like. As a child, I loved baseball, still love baseball. As an adult, that was my sport as a young boy and into adolescence and into my teen years. Uh, my father, who was my coach my whole entire life, he had un unconventional yet very effective ways of teaching me how to not be afraid of the baseball. Okay. Um, <clears throat> we would get about 20 feet away from each other, and, and here's what he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to throw the baseball at each other as fast as we can and you're not allowed to get out of the way. I kept moving out of the way, right? I kept doing that like, whoop, you know, I'm not gonna, that's the only time you're gonna see me do that move. And uh, <clears throat> you, know, you know that, the side move, right? Where you, the ball comes. Um, it's a, a healthy fear. Baseball, it's a healthy fear. Every, everybody learning, every, any, every boy and girl learning baseball uh, learns that's a healthy fear. Uh, balls are, are hard and faces are soft. And <laughs> it's just physics. And here's the coaching advice that he gave to me that I'll never forget. He said, it's impossible. I want you to know it's impossible for the ball to hit you if your glove is between you and the ball. Deep, isn't it? <laughs> right? But true. And he says, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to spend any of your energy or thought on getting out of the way. You don't even have to worry about how fast the ball is coming. Because I promise you one thing. If your glove is between you and the threat and the ball, it will never hit you. You see, I could take my attention now off of the ball and how close the person was or how hard it was hit off the bat or how fast it was being thrown. Those metrics don't matter at all. As long as the glove was between me and the ball, I didn't have to be afraid. And I could shift now my attention on getting behind the glove. And after that, I don't think I was ever afraid. I've had some very close encounters with baseballs, hit hard off the bat, and I loved it, and I don't think I was, I mean, there were some times I, I would catch it and say, that was close, I almost died. But I don't think I was ever afraid of the baseball speeding towards me, because all I had to do was get behind the glove. Now listen, in the midst of David's fears, and in the midst of the middle of this psalm, we see the poetic center. The sleeping David is resting as a war for his body and soul fights on. He rested not because the enemies stopped their warring, but because David anchored his hope in his peace and God's ability to sustain him, because David put his energy in getting behind God. You see, too often Christians will say, I will be at rest when the trouble stops. I will be at rest when I get this, when this gets better. God is inviting us to get behind him as a shield for us as he leads us into the crisis and into the war. David says, God sustained me in verse 5. He says, he sustained me. I, I love this. He says, would you, would, you, would you dig into this and meditate on this? I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Does anybody else here see some surprise? I laid down and I slept and I woke again. Oh my goodness, I'm alive. <laughs> I think that's how David felt. He went to sleep in peace and he woke up and he says, you gotta be kidding me, I can't believe I'm still here. God, you sustained me. The word sustained, it literally means to grasp, to hold on to. It doesn't mean you helped me get through that. He says, I am alive because you held tightly onto me. You held me up. You held my life in your hands. The terminology for war is all through this psalm, and it's good for us to see that. The words like foes and shield and a camp of a thousand enemies, and, and even the, the, the war cry of victory at the end, all these are like word terminology 
David has, has discovered a way to handle the, the, the war of the soul-paralyzing emotions that we feel throughout our lives. He has figured out the secret to soul sadness. Not by stuffing his emotions, not by venting or giving uh, free reign or into his emotions and saying, this is just how I am. But by directing his emotions away from the thing that troubles him and towards the God who holds him. The Christian ought to remember that behind every earthly and, and enemy and earthly crisis stands a spiritual power of wickedness. Every trouble, every fear, every crisis, every pain, and every sickness stands behind that wickedness. Satan desires to undo us. He seeks to, he seeks to present to us healthy fears, and then he desires to morph these fears into a kind of darkness that causes us to run in fear from God, in fear from his people, in fear from his promises, in fear from his commandments. And it's a war that we cannot fight or win. Our only hope is for God to stand between us and our enemy and to be victorious. And this is what David cries out as he gets in deep into his soul sadness and he communicates this to God. He now says, my only confidence is if God, you come out of the shadows and you stand between me and my enemy and if you grant me salvation, grant me victory, Sustain my life. The only hope is if God stands between David and his enemy. The destination of the Psalms are obvious. All of the Psalms have a destination. Their outline is difficult to discern at times. Sometimes you're wondering, where is this going? But their destination is the same. It's always moving towards Jesus. The Psalms are always meant to see the rescue of God as our substitute standing between us and our enemy as David's soul was in anguish, he directed his confidence to God who would be a shield about him, who would stand between him and his enemies and knock the teeth out of their mouths. Jesus is good, but he is not weak. Jesus is patient, but he is not, he is not timid. Jesus is kind, but he is not a coward. At the cross, Jesus acted as a shield about us. He became our substitute. He stood between us and our enemy. He stared death and the devil in his face. He took the sins and the consequences and punishment of sin on himself. He experienced physical threat and he experienced, if you remember, soul-crushing agony. He cried out to God. He says, my soul is in anguish. You see, we see in the humanity and person of Jesus that he wasn't just afraid of dying. He was afraid of what we're afraid of ultimately as well. That we're cut off from the favor of God. And as Jesus hung on the cross and died, he says, God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why have you not helped me? He experienced our greatest fears and then he died. And as he rose from the grave, he broke the teeth out of death itself. He makes fear a toothless beast with bark and no bite. Is Jesus your shield? Are you running with him wherever he leads you? Do you hide behind him and his provision and his ability to sustain you? He is the kind of shield that is no benefit to the one who is running away from danger. 
He is the kind of shield that is only beneficial to the one as following the leading of God as even as he leads us into crisis. This God who fights for you will never leave you. This God who dies for you will hold you secure and make you lie down in peace. Let's pray.